Samuel. We're looking at chapters 15, 16, and 17 this morning. And the theme of these chapters is stress or distress. That's kind of the new theme of this section of of Samuel. The first uh, section of Samuel was was more about just um, despair. Uh, There was no leader. God raises up Samuel, first seven chapters. Then chapters eight to now was about disobedience, raised up Saul, but he just was always disobeying. Now we're introduced to a new theme in the book, and that is God is raising up Samuel, and it's all about stress. Has anybody got any stress? I mean, most of you will say every day, right? I mean, stress, you can, you just, it's endless trying to define it. Um, stress being strain, suffering, pressure, uh, emptiness, exhaustion. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. You try to think about what do you mean by stress. It's our problems. We've got stress uh, over um, school, moving, jobs, work, children, physical health. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. Um, so many things can cause us stress. I wonder if, uh, you know, anybody was around during David's day when we're going to read the story, when it comes up, we're going to anoint you to be our next king. If somebody was, maybe it was Samuel, who was around said, boy, you, you hadn't seen stress till now. I mean, life is about to change for you forever, and don't think it's just going to be fun. It's going to be tough, and you're going to be stressed to the max from now on the rest of your life. Uh, It's kind of like sometimes what we say at at these graduation ceremonies. Life now begins. Now you start getting out into the real world. You think your life's been tough. It's about to be kicked up ten notches, and life's going to change. That's the way it is for David. So, Let me give you the big picture first, and then we'll back up. Chapter 15, all the way to the end, chapter 31, is stress. You get into 2 Samuel, Lord willing, we'll get there. 2 Samuel, and David about becomes king. So it's taking us from chapters 15 to 31. He's told he's going to be king, but he doesn't get to become king. He has to watch Saul become king. Saul, Saul is king. And David's got to live these years of waiting to be king. He's been anointed king. He can't be king. Somebody else is in that job. we got to kick him out so I can get up. And during that time, Saul keeps chasing him, trying to kill him. Because he knows he's going to be the next king. And if he's the next king, then his son Jonathan doesn't get to be king. I mean, it's, it's just packed with stress. All the things that have got to happen... David realizes that, and just before he becomes king, look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 4. So let's let's go to the, I like to read the end of the book first, okay? That's just me. So that's where I'm taking you. I like to read the last chapter. I like to know where I'm going um, before I get there. And this is what I'm helping you see here. 2 Samuel, I think it comes right after 1 Samuel. looks like I could find it. There it is. All right, 2 Samuel, chapter 4. If you have a heading for chapter 5 in your Bibles, it'll probably say something like, David becomes king over all Israel. So just as he becomes 
king over all Israel, chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. Notice what happens in 2 Samuel 4. Ishbosheth, the last basically relative of, of Saul's that could be king, dies. And at that moment, chapter 4, verse 9, the last phrase of verse 9, a, a phrase worth underlining. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. Wow. You can trust me in this. As the Lord lives, I have a Lord who has delivered my life from all distress. Like I, I want to be in that, that position that David got in. He was stressed, 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 stressed. People trying to kill him all the time. It just reminded me of our president. You know, uh, lots of people have been after him, obviously, or the media has been after him. Who who knows who have been after him? But during this time, I've always wondered. And some one of the the chief of the CIA came out with an article this this week. I read, and uh, somebody asked, you know, how many death threats does our president get? And the CIA said he gets about six to eight per day. But then he threw that in. He says, but that's no different than Obama or Bush. He says, I've, I've been in this job for three presidencies. And all of our presidents get about a thousand death threats per administration. Who wants that stress? I am not signing up for that job. You know, but you're like you thought... You had a tough job. You just stepped into a job where there are people seriously trying to kill you every day. And this civil servants that are trying to protect you, they have a real job. They're having to run down people who are threatening them, threatening our president. And the same thing was happening with King David who, before he becomes king. You're going to be, I don't like you. And they are giving him constant death threats. He lives through that period, and then he gets to this place, all distress is gone. I have a Lord who has delivered me from all distress. I want you to get there. I want to get there. Um, there was an article in the news this morning. Uh, caption caught me because of the title of this sermon. Uh, yoga relieves stress. Thought, yeah, duh. I mean, how many of us have quick solutions? Take two Tylenol and get rest. You know, it'll take away some of the stress. Go take a walk. Do a little meditation. Get a good glass of wine. I mean, there's all sorts of things that say this will deliver from distress. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about those temporary little fixes that relieve a little stress. I'm talking about being delivered from all distress. Quite a different scenario, and that's where David has taken us. So now, I've taken you to the end of the story we'll get to. Let's go back to the beginning of the story when the stress starts. And as this stress starts back in 1 Samuel 15, 16, and 17... We see God continuing this theme we saw last week of, of Saul not having a whole heart for God and showing us a man now, David, that with a whole heart from God, 
deliverance from distress occurs. The, the ways we often try to get rid of our stress is through honor instead of a heart for God, through the way we look, our handsomeness instead of a heart from God, or through our good health instead of a heart from God. Obviously, the theme is we need a heart for God, and that heart for God really does change things. Let's look at uh, the, the honor passage, chapter 15. Let me just read through it. Verse uh, 1, chapter 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now stop, that is not politically correct, is it? We don't have any military man, woman, that would probably stay in office if they said this is going to be our strategy. But that's God's strategy. Saul, here's the command. Your commander-in-chief wants you to go to Amalek, and I want you to destroy him, strike him. And everything he has, don't spare him. Put him to death, man and woman to death, child and infant to death, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I think if that was to happen today, we'd probably most get upset over the donkey or the sheep or something. I can't believe they killed the dog. God says, no, I want you to kill everything. That's, that's pretty strong orders and fairly clear. What does Saul do with them? Uh, verse 7 through 9. I'm giving you the Reader's Digest versions. Verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, that's the king of the Amalekites, alive. First clue, was he supposed to capture him alive? It's pretty clear. And he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and it starts getting interesting, he adds to that, and the best of the sheep, and the oxen, and the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good. All that was good could include a lot of things. And we're not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they, that they utterly destroyed. All right, then God shows back up. Verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. Can you see God in heaven shaking his head? Every animal, woman, child, man that Saul does not destroy... God's shaking his head. It's not what I said to do. It's not what I said to do. It's not what I said to do. He finally says, I regret. I put Saul in charge. That I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. He has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed. You see the theme. Distressed in heaven. Distressed from the prophet of God. He starts going through the people and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, 
saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, notice what, this, notice what Saul does, set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. See, Saul thinks, hey, that's pretty good. I went in to the Amalekites, captured the king, destroyed anything that was ugly and dirty, anything I despised, I wiped it out. But all the good stuff, I kept it. Man, I'm pretty, let, let's build a monument and name it after me because I'm the best you got. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. That's Saul's perspective on what happened when heaven's shaking their heads in regret. How many times do we say, it makes us feel good if, if somebody will just lift me up? Somebody will just appreciate me? Saul's living here saying, if you're not going to do that, I'll do it myself. It just feels good. You get out of the stress and the pressure of war if you could just be appreciated and exalted. And Samuel, excuse me, Saul takes care of that, um, building a monument to himself. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Really? Verse 14, Samuel said, you know, basically, if you carried out the command of the Lord, why am I hearing sheep in my ears and oxen? I mean, did not God specifically say, kill the ox, kill the sheep? So how, could you, how could you be thinking you were obedient? There's living proof you were disobedient. It's, it, it's just so obvious. How is it you can't get this? Um, Verse 15, Saul starts defending himself. Saul said, they have uh, brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared. The people did. See, you know, that wasn't me. The, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. Oh, that's a good point. You know, we're just doing this because we have this heart for worship. And we want to, we know God really likes it when we give him sacrifices. So we're going to do that. We're going to sacrifice all these sheep and oxen you hear, it's just about worship. Uh, but the rest, last part of verse 15, the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he had said to him, okay, speak. Verse 17, then Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. It's almost like, basically, if God were to give us command and say, Look, I, I want you to go to hell. And everybody you see in this region of hell, I want you to destroy them. Could we pull that off? Because God says so. Saul, Saul, the people I've asked you to utterly destroy are cast out from my presence. They deserve this. This is justice. This is holiness. This is righteousness. Saul says, uh, yeah, but I like some of them. I want to keep the best of them, and I want to use the best for worship. Saul is told by Samuel, no, Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
you, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Saul still defended himself. Then the Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag. I wouldn't have brought that up. I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the choicest of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And here's God speaking through Samuel. Verse 22, Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Wow. Then verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. It's pretty clear. Saul has called, caused Samuel distress. The Lord is sorry Saul was even king. The people are now in distress. David's in distress. It just It's this theme, and it all because of disobedience, just not obeying the voice of the Lord. It, it reminded me of the rich young ruler. Look at Matthew 19, 16 through 22. Matthew 19 might look a little more like us. I think you can see how Saul's a lot like us. The rich young ruler, Matthew 19, beginning at verse 16. Someone came to him and he said, Teacher, this is rich young ruler, what good thing shall I do that I may attain eternal life? So this rich, good-looking guy comes to Jesus. Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who's good, but if you wish to enter into life, speaking eternal life, then keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You know, like you shall not commit murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, shall uh, love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, I do that. All these things I have kept, and I'm still, am I, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And look at, uh, still in Matthew, look at chapter 6. Verse 21, kind of a summary. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus saying, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The rich young ruler was told, you know, you can have treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. In other words, you can measure your heart, rich man, by measuring your treasure where your treasure's at. The rich young ruler, I say, he, he, he reminds me of us. Because, see, you can be this man, and we would like him. We would look like him. 
because he's well off, he's well clothed, he's not pushing a cart down Main Street. You know, he's got a nice house, he's got a nice car, he's got ability to have a nice education. Um, he's got, and, and he goes to church, obviously, he knows the commandments, and he keeps the commandments as a young man. And he's even inquiring of the Lord about eternal life and, and all of that. It sounds like us. And Jesus says, yeah, but do you want to be complete? You can measure completeness by, by where your treasure is. I'm not seeing you storing your treasure in heaven. See, that's something people can't see. That's something God can see. God can see our hearts. And suppose, suppose he gave money to the church. I mean, he's a rich man. He gives something. And, and as Joe said earlier, I'm not trying to manipulate you. Let's pick the tithe for a minute. Because I think it, it amounts to the, it describes the rich young ruler. It describes Saul. It describes the way a lot of times we give to God as we use money as a measure of our heart according to Christ. Maybe the rich man gave some money, but he didn't give the full amount. And so Jesus says, you know, if you want to be complete, give the full amount. And the guy shakes his head, no, 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 no. That bothers me. Don't ask me to do that. See, you don't understand how I got to be rich. You don't understand how I got to be good. Rich people know that's not the way that you do it. You give to self first. You, you do these things first. If you've got any leftovers, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You give that to God. How did Saul give to God? Saul gave the spoil. Saul said, oh, but we had some sheep and oxen in the battle that didn't get killed. They're the leftovers. God, we're going to give that to you. That's going to be an act of worship. And a lot of times, that's exactly how we live. God, yeah, I know you told me to give 10%, but God, you don't understand. Right now, 6%, 5%, 4%, that's all that's left over. I give the spoils. I give you this amount. And surely everybody in heaven is rejoicing because I gave. It was an act of worship. All my friends rejoice. Some even build monuments to me because I gave so much, because I am so rich, they think I am somebody. And God in heaven is saying, oh, man, I regret this. This is not obedience. How many times do I have to say, this is not keeping my word? This is not laying up treasure in heaven. This is honoring yourself. And you feel good, and it allows you to step out of stress. And because you feel good by honoring yourself, you think, oh, this is the Christian life. And we have a God who said, no, 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 that's not it. That's not it. Back again, 1 Samuel 15, 22 Crucial verses. Has the Lord as much delight in that kind of lifestyle? Burnt offerings, sacrifices, going to church, doing your own thing, 
as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better. And the context to obey here is 100% absolute, utterly destroy everything. So the context of obedience is completely keeping my word. If it says 10%, you don't do 9 or 8 or 7. You see, it's, it's God saying to obey. How many of us have ever really said, you know, God, I don't need my house. I don't need my car. I don't need to be properly clothed. I just need to worship you. And I'm going to worship you with all my heart first. And if I have anything left over, I'll live with that. I mean, that would be radical, isn't it? But isn't it right? That we obey first? And that God is really first? And then if, no matter how it plays out, we live with the rest? That's what God is saying to Saul. Says, Saul, you're not the kind of king I'm looking for. Because you're, you're not really all in with me first. You're all in with you first, and if you've got anything left over, it goes to God. Well, that's certainly how we often live, and it causes such stress. And why would we want that when a heart of humility would be far better. God says, you act like the same, same sin that a witch commits, divination, insubordination, idolatry, same kind of sin. All right, let's move to the second chapter. Chapter 16 of this stressful beginning through 1 Samuel. Samuel goes to Bethlehem. Here we have a story of, of contrast, really, between um, Saul and, and David. Chapter 16, how, how, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? So Samuel was so distressed. I mean, he's just weeping at night and praying, God, fix this, fix Saul. And God says to Samuel, just quit it. Stop crying. I'm moving on here. I'm not hanging on to Saul. He's out, David's in. This is the plan. Since I have rejected him from beginning king, being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So uh, Samuel uh, gets his horn filled up, and he goes to um, Jesse. And you know the story, I think. Jesse's got a number of sons, and Saul goes there to anoint, anoint them. Uh, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Well, verse 6, I skipped. When they entered, he looked at Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. All right, if, if you've got a, um, you know, I, I wish we had a, a family in the church I could pick on here, you know, with about seven or eight sons, and you could see them stair-step down. Well, you just immediately go to the oldest He's tall, he's handsome, he's the most mature. And so Saul walks in the room with all of these sons, and he says, there's our next king. And God said, no, 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 no. Verse 7, 
Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his, of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, then Jesse, verse 8, says, how about the next one? You know, he's going down these sons, and of course, none of them work. They had to go get David, the youngest, verse 12. So he sent and he brought him in, and now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Don't, don't miss that. The focus is not so much just on handsomeness. Eliab may have been a very handsome man, the oldest son. But now we're down to David, and David's handsome too. He's a beautiful young boy, and he's handsome. God says the emphasis is not on handsomeness, which is what we tend to put it on, but it's on heart. He says, I look at the heart. I'm not against you being beautiful and handsome. You should be. I created you. You're made in my image. But I'm still looking at the heart. Seek, you know, if, if, if we're seeking to hire somebody, whatever it is, whenever I've been on that team that's trying to hire somebody, I want to see a picture, don't you? I, I want to see what he looks like, what she looks like. I want to I see what their family looks like. That tells me a lot. And God says, I want to see their heart. I know they're handsome and beautiful. I, I created them that way. I want to see their heart. And we tend to ignore the heart and we focus on what we can see outwardly. You know, I, I heard of a man getting a job as a preacher just because he had a good suntan. Just kidding. God doesn't require us to have a good suntan. He doesn't require us to have physical fitness. He doesn't require us to have health. He doesn't require these physical abilities. He requires a heart for him. He wants us to see that. He wants David uh, to see that. He wants Samuel to see that. He wants all the people to see that. And we tend to focus on everything else, even in... Um, Religious circles, we put preachers and teachers through all sorts of hoops that aren't in the Scripture instead of asking about the heart. You know, I, I was thinking as I'm a part of um, Dave Preston's ordination service this evening of, of my presbytery exams and seminary training and all that. I just kind of went down memory lane in my, my mind thinking through that. And I only remember one person fixed I could count on one hand, but I count on one finger the number of people who asked me a question about my heart. And I don't even remember who he was. I just remember I was being examined in a court in um, Oak Claire Church in Columbia, South Carolina in 1983, and a man stood up in the congregation and says, I got a question for you, young man. Can I ask it? And he said, I said, sure. He said, I want to know one thing. Do you love Jesus? And do you love his people? And I remember that question to this day because that's the one that mattered. That's the right question. Not, are you tall and handsome? Do you have the skill set? 
but do you have the heart for the task? Are you possessed by God's Spirit? Have you been transformed in the inner man and called by God for this service? You know, I, when I hear parents tell me, you know, they, they've quit the education, they've started or begun with their kids, and they've switched to another, I think about this sometimes. It's, it's like, and it doesn't really matter how you switch it up. You know, I've, I've quit homeschooling, we're going to go to this private school. Or I've quit this private school, and we're going to this public school. Or I've quit this public school, and we're going to this private school. Or I've quit all that, and I'm going back to homeschool. And I sometimes ask, why are you doing this? And the answer most of the time is because of the sports or because of the debate club or because of the drama or because of the music. And I say, okay, I get all that. And is that primary or is the education primary? And they look at me like, well, education is primary. I mean, that's, a, that's just the default. Sure, these... I said, really, is it? Because sometimes the way you switch it up, I don't see that that's really what's happening. And I get the fact, because this is our culture, this is our world, this is where we live. I get the fact that if your kid's good at debate or drama or music or sports, I get the fact that all of these, these outward things, they open doors for us. They they take us places that other things like education won't take us because people look at the picture before they look at the heart. And so we want these things that create the photo op. I get that. But at the same time, I have a responsibility as a parent to dress my child. And I want to start to contemplate, you know, as, as I dress my child for life, do I, I spend just as much time dressing the outside as I spend dressing the inside? How do you dress your child's heart? How do you work on what's primary? How do you make sure as they jump into these extra things, they don't jump out of the primary thing? The education of the heart or the development of the heart for God. Being trained to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. As you put them to bed at night, as you wake them up in the morning, how do you dress that heart? Saul missed it. Samuel almost missed it. God says, we, we so much want to just see the outward. God wants to see the inward. Then the third story that brings us this same message, 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David killing Goliath. And so we move from honor of ourselves, handsomeness of ourselves, to our health. What's really going on in people's minds in the David-Goliath saga is they don't want to lose their health. They don't want to lose their life. There's this big giant is threatening to cut off all health, all physical existence. And what we're looking for here is somebody that's strong, healthy, physically able to take on Goliath. 
1 Samuel 17, let me skip to verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine giant and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? You know, David steps on the scene and starts just in unbelief. How, how can people let this guy do this? Uh, and of course, you know, who to complain? Verse 28, now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard. Remember him? He was the guy who got looked over. Samuel said, Eliab, he's our man. And God said, no, no, no. Go find him. He's, he's, he's out in the field. That's David. Eliab just now is saying, ah, he's back? Goodness. Look at him. He's not as strong and tough as me, but Eliab's not stepping up to the plate saying, I'll take on the Philistine. Eliab is against David. Everybody else is saying, who is this guy? Verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. You get a glimpse into David's heart. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the Lord. He said, The Lord's going to win this battle. It's, it's not about being the tallest and the strongest and the best. If you want him, maybe you ought to go get Eliab. But I'm a man with a heart for God. And I just see God many times blessing me as a result. God has given me a heart and God likes to bless me focusing on him. Verse 41, the Philistine doesn't get it. The Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he was disdained. He was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. I mean, who picks somebody like this? You know, to, to fight just unbelievable. David's response to all that, verse 45 through 47. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted, this day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David's not taking credit. It's our hands. We're doing this. It's God. The battle is the Lord's. It's not mine. Um, what were they looking for? They were all looking for some successful hunk. The Philistine was looking for that. He was looking for a real battle. All the Israelites were looking for that. Would, even Saul, the king, I'm looking for somebody bigger, better, more experienced, more successful than me to take on this Philistine. They were all looking at the outward. And they were looking at somebody really strong. It's the strongman contest. I want somebody who looks strong and uh, very experienced. You know, a lot of times we're looking for the same thing. We think we'll have a prosperous marriage if we can just marry a hunk or we can marry a hunkette. Is that a word? 
you know, we look at the outward. Our business will be better if we can just get this boy looks good, or boy, she looks good. We keep looking for those outward things, and our children will look so good if we could just dress them this way or that way. We're looking at the health of someone, the hunkiness of someone. God's clearly looking at the heart. So let me sum it up. Three, three stories, three chapters. Are we stressed out? What does God want us to do? God says it's not about honor, it's about heart. It's not about handsomeness, it's about heart. It's not about your health. It's about your heart. The message just rings over and over and over. Be honest. Wouldn't you feel a little bit better if you could be appreciated, have honor? If you could be exalted and lifted up a little bit? If, wouldn't you feel better if you looked better? If you had dropped those 10 pounds you've been trying to drop and you been to the gym and worked out, wouldn't you feel better, maybe less stress? If people just were wowed by your looks and appearance, and God would be shaking his head in heaven and saying, that's not what's going to make you feel better. Trust me when I say you'll stand in the day of judgment and what's going to make you feel better is a heart for God. A heart transformed by Christ. Because this outer shell we have will pass away. And that heart is what's left Second Chronicles, chapter 16. God trying to get this message across to Asa. Says this, very popular verse, Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro. What does the Lord see as he's looking throughout the earth? He's looking to strongly support those whose heart is, these words are important, not partially give him the leftovers kind of heart, whose heart is completely his. That's who God is looking to bless. You know, um, as you, you go back to these early warfare days, you may think, like me sometimes, the damsel in distress kind of story, that's where the, the knight in shining armor comes down and swoops up the girl, kills the enemies. Where we're the damsel in distress. We're that lady. We're that girl. And Christ is the knight in shining armor. And as he gets to choose who he's going to save and bless, he says, I'm looking for that one whose heart is completely mine. I'm not looking at the outward. I'm not looking at the one who's most handsome, who has the photographic finished kind of impressiveness. I'm looking at the heart, and I want to save, I want to deliver, I want to rescue the one whose heart is completely mine. So, 
if, if you're a believer, yeah, we need to develop that art. If you're not a believer, you say, well, then I need that heart. Yes. Go to Christ. Say, Lord, I need a new heart. Need you to give to me what I don't have, what I can't earn, what I can't possess, unless it's gift. Give me a new heart and then develop in me this heart for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it is so easy for us to get distracted. It's so easy for us to be conformed to this world, to be all about who we are, how we act, how we appear on the outside. It's so easy for us not to have time for heart development or even for a prayer for a heart for God since nobody else seems to be asking or looking for that heart. Father, it's rare when somebody asks us about our heart for you. Forgive us that we've allowed that not to be the focus. Return us, restore us to our first love, to our true love, to a place where our hearts are all in for Jesus. Father, for those in this room who've been playing church like the rich man, Knowing the commandments, doing all the right things, we can't tell. But they know their heart's not yours. They know there's no treasure in heaven. It's all here on earth. Father, grant them a new heart. Grant them a testimony that the Lord is their deliverer from all their distress. Father, we ask for such grace. We ask for mercy. We ask that you're the main thing in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.